Happy Monday! Our guest today is Heidi Briones. She is running for the U.S. House of Representatives seat for District 1 in Oregon. This seat represents constituents in West Portland, Hillsboro, Beaverton, everything west of I-5, north side of downtown Portland, all the way to Astoria, Seaside, Cannon Beach, and Yamhill County. So why did you decide to run for District 1 for the House Representatives? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I live in District 1 uh, currently, with my family, with my wife, and my kitty cats, which is my family. And uh, I was a volunteer and an avid supporter of Andrew Yang's campaign this last cycle. Uh, I've, I've been interested in politics for quite some time. I have a degree in uh, politics and I've I worked as a legislative aide and other things. I never really considered running because I didn't feel compelled um, until uh, this last cycle. Just the issues that are happening in our economy currently spurred me to think about it more deeply and get more involved again in this last cycle with uh, Andrew Yang's campaign and some of his policies. And when, when he left the race, go ahead. Yeah. What specific issues are you, like economic issues are you talking about? Yeah, I'm talking about how the economy is transforming due to technology and automation and uh, extreme job loss due to automation in this country, which has spurred uh, a lot of, I think, economic decline in certain areas, especially where there was large manufacturing and now you can see it with other sectors moving into that as well. So I had seen it with uh, manufacturing. I worked in production at a Tesla factory and I saw how automation was, you know, pretty much going to replace most of the workers there, most of the factory workers who depended on that livelihood. It was the main job in the town of Reno. So it would be pretty tough for them. I just saw it happening and Andrew Yang was the only one really talking about it. And when I looked at you know, the data and read his book um, in regards to automation, the war on normal people just seemed very, just seemed very pressing. And it's something that I wanted to do something about. So, uh, you know, being in district one, it's less manufacturing, but there are a ton of call centers and a lot of retail and a lot of food service, which are things that are subject to automation in the coming years as well. So uh, I didn't see anyone else running on that issue of, um, automation due to job loss and universal basic income, you know, as a, as a solution to at least give people a floor to stand on. And now with the coronavirus, it's uh, becoming a bit more clear that we do need some sort of uh, universal basic income, certainly on an emergency aspect right now, which is being proposed by both sides of the aisle. So I think it's pretty clear that a lot of the policies I'm talking about are uh, timely. Yeah. So, um, what, um, so when you talk about universal basic income, like if I guess going backward or fast forwarding to when the coronavirus, um, hopefully, um, decreases and the economy gets going again, what would that look like? Um, so there would be, so everyone would get a certain portion of money from the government each month? 
Yeah, normally um, people set it up different ways. Uh, I do like Andrew Yang's proposal because it is based on, um, you know, getting the funds from automation. So it would be, you know, with the most basic proposal, it's been proposed by a few people, not just Andrew Yang, but also Andy Stern and some other people would be a thousand dollars per month per um, American adult U.S. citizen would get a thousand dollars per month, which would be twelve thousand a year just below the poverty line in the U.S., uh, just to provide that base of income. So basically just a form of capitalism where income doesn't start at zero and people have a little bit of money to play with and consistent uh, basic income coming in. So if other things do happen, like another pandemic or a recession, uh, we don't necessarily have to freak out and have the government and bureaucracy trying to figure out how to get money to people. They would have that floor to stand on. And also with job loss due to lots of different things that are going to come up in the next decade or two. I believe it's pretty important right now. So is that what, um, on your website, you say human-centered capitalism? Is that what you're talking about? Um, where they have, well, where um, each American has like a $1,000 a month or whatever um, income? Um. Yeah, I mean, sort of, that's part of it. I mean, human-centered capitalism was actually something that, uh, yeah, that Yang talked about and kind of brought up. It's more like uh, centering our economy based on human value rather than strictly economic value, because right now we're seeing that we mainly look at GDP as far as our economic measurement tool. But the problem with that is, is that GDP can go straight up if we replace human workers with highly efficient robots and AI. So GDP, you could see going way up and you could see people actually losing jobs. So it's more like changing the measurements of our economy in that sense to include things like mental health and happiness. And if people are able to you know, find a job that they like and actually judging underemployment and unemployment in a more meaningful way. Uh, and it's just changing how we look at what is economic success um, while still under the framework of capitalism. We mean, GDP is still important but it shouldn't run us off a cliff to where we're not considering the human implications. And with technology, we can't always rely on, you know, our labor anymore. We can't necessarily trade our labor the way that we used to. If a robot can do something better than me, it doesn't matter how hard I work anymore. It doesn't matter if I'm the best at what I do. <laughs> if robots still going to be a hundred times better, then that's a problem if we're just only measuring GDP. So it's changing our framework with capitalism to make it more human-centered because capitalism is transforming at a rapid rate. So if we want to keep capitalism working, then it's to frame it more as far as the value that it provides to humans. Yeah, I I understand the um, job loss through machines taking our jobs, but isn't that a good thing because we're innovating and we have more efficient machinery to get to more people and the jobs, they won't exist anymore, but it'll open new jobs. Yeah, I agree. It's definitely a good thing. And I do want, you know, technology to replace a lot of these, frankly, just horrible jobs that people are doing. Um, the issue kind of comes with what do you do with the person who's, like a truck driver or something who's making $80,000 a year right now, um, which is it's one of the more common jobs in the country. And then they get 
you know, they get displaced by a robot truck, which is going to happen at some point here in the next uh, decade is what's estimated. And then what is that person supposed to do? I mean, generally, we'd say we would retrain them or there'd be another job for them. Uh, but that's going to take some time. I mean, that person isn't going to immediately going to become like some other some other profession when they've been a truck driver or if they're a manufacturer worker. We saw that. I mean, we, we're seeing that now. Manufacturing workers, a great portion of them just filed for disability and never went back into the workforce. So uh, we're seeing this displacement and it's good. But what about the people like where's what are they going to do during transitions? And I think that's where. UBI is really helpful. It's during transitionary periods where it's like, I just got out of school. I just got out of college. What am I going to do right now? Maybe it'll take me a year to get a good job because I don't have experience and I need to intern. Or maybe I just lost my job to a robot, which is technically good. And I want to find another job. But now what? What am I going to do? Should I just like, I don't know, file for disability, even though I'm not really disabled? Like, how does that work? Or then if I'm disabled, I can't really go out and do anything because then I have that mindset like I'm disabled. So type of the thing about the UBI is it's just universal. Everybody has it and it provides that floor for these transitionary periods, which of course automation is good. We want that. But what are, what are the people supposed to do on the in-between sides and the in-between times? Yeah, I'm, I'm like in that transition period. But the only thing that kind of makes me leery of universal basic income is taxing the people and mm -hmm. i don't know if more taxing would be good um right so what would what is i guess your argument for um the need to tax more people because to like help with that transition period um the people that are in that transition period they could just get like jobs that Wendy's or like um, that don't really require a degree per se to help out. And that way they're helping the economy and not um, burdening the taxpayer with more taxes. Sure. Um, well, a couple of things there. I mean, I kind of think these Wendy's jobs are going to be automated too. I mean, we're seeing the kiosks mm -hmm. and all that. So there might not be a lot of these like kind of bottom level jobs because those are kind of the crappy jobs that they're looking to automate because it'll just be so much more efficient. Um, so there might not be a lot of those little jobs for them to fall on. But yeah, I definitely understand the concern. Obviously, I'm not uh, very tax happy either. Uh, I, I do think that we need like less income taxes and more consumption type taxes. And this is something that used to have a lot of bipartisan support. Like I remember, uh, I think before, I think it was, yeah, the first um, Bush, so George H.W. Bush, they had a luxury tax and it generated a ton of money for the economy. Um, and Clinton actually got rid of it. Uh, it's based on, you know, consumption of people buying goods over 300,000. I think it was something like that. Luxury goods like yachts and things like that. And they used to tax those. And then, you know, it's like, that's fine. That rich person's going to be OK. They're going to buy that yacht. You know, maybe they pay a 15 percent tax on it and it all goes back to the economy. Um, it's consumption. They don't have to choose to buy that yacht. Um, it's not based on their income or their wealth or things like that. It's not, you know, de-incentivizing them to do better. Uh, so that's kind of the type of tax that uh, I would really want to see funding this type of thing. So, for example, 
Uh, you have in Alaska, they use uh, the money that they get from oil to fund their dividend. It's a smaller dividend, about one to 2,000 a year per citizen. Uh, but you could have a value added tax on uh, technology. So for example, right now you have companies like Amazon, Google, Apple, that pay very, very little or zero a lot of times in taxes. And I personally don't think that's right. Like I don't think a person making 50K should be paying a bunch of income taxes and a big corporation like Amazon should pay zero. Uh, it just doesn't seem right. They should pay some sort of tax. If you have a value added tax, which is what they have in other countries, then you're able to tax each level of production and move that money back into the form of a dividend because that's where all the gains are gonna be from all this automation is you're gonna see that those gains from technology. If you tax each part of the automation stage, then even if you do it at a 10% level, let's say everybody, let's say they did raise the, the price of goods by 10% on, and we just exclude food and basic items, of course, but if it was like cell phones and things you buy on Amazon that are just for consumption, let's say they all go up by 10%, but everybody's getting $1,000 in their dividend each month, well, you'd have to consume a whole lot for that to balance out. So if you make it a consumption tax based on people's behavior and they can choose or not choose to buy that thing and you just exclude basic items, then I think that's a pretty fair tax if you're getting back a thousand bucks a month and everybody's getting it. So I think that you have to set it up correctly, make it more consumption based, less wealth and income based. And then I think it could be pretty fair and, you know, fairly fiscally moderate. And um, you said that's what they do in Alaska or they that's an example. Yeah. Um, so Alaska has had an oil dividend for about. I don't know, 20 to 30 years, I believe um, it was actually uh, proposed by I believe it was a Republican governor because they had all this oil money mm. and they basically voted on it. They're like, hey, we, we're going to take this oil money. Do you want the government of Alaska to have it and just do what we want with it and decide what to do? Or would you rather get a dividend um, each year? And everybody voted for the dividend because then they, <laughs> they get the money and they get to choose what they want to do with it. And then everybody gets like one to 2000 every year. And it's been very popular. Um, it's just based on the gains from oil. So if you kind of use that concept, the gains in technology and provide a dividend back, uh, I think it makes a lot of sense. Hmm. Wow, that's cool. I didn't know that. So um, <clears throat> another thing I wanna talk about is you, um, you decided to leave the U.S. to become an English teacher in Taiwan. Yeah. And so from your website, I gathered that, like, the economy was crumbling, so you wanted to leave. So what made you come back? Yeah, I think a lot of what made me come back is family and friends and culture. Um, while I do love being in another country, it was super fun. And I did like, you know, uh, getting a decent income for teaching English and you get a lot of free perks there when you're a foreigner and teaching English there. They kind of provide a lot of economic incentives for you, makes it pretty fun and manageable. Uh, I had a great time, but in the end, I mean, my family isn't there. It's incredibly far away. Uh, so yeah. it's not like I can fly back home when it's my brother or sister's birthday and I have a big family. So I really miss them and felt like I was going to miss out on life. and. 
Um, also, you know, as a, you know, as a gay woman, I didn't feel like there was a whole lot of queer culture in other countries. So I did miss being like, you know, on that kind of on the West Coast where there's a lot of things to do and felt like I could socialize more naturally. Uh, so I just missed like basically, you know, my culture, um, even though it was a great experience, I don't think I could necessarily live in Asia and settle down and have a, a whole life there. Well, I did have a lot of friends that did that and they, they're like, I'm never coming back because it's so much cheaper there and they figured out a way to make it work. But for me, um, family is so important to me. So I had to come back. So what, um, what did you particularly like about, um, teaching in like Asia or South Korea and Taiwan? Yeah. Um, I mean, those are kind of different experiences, but similar in Taiwan, I taught kids. So I was teaching kids whose parents had a decent amount of money and could send them to, you know, English school. Uh, so, you know, it was, uh, it's just a different culture as far as the classroom, the kids are some of them were pretty tired by the time like I would get to teach them because I taught a lot of night classes, but they were still very respectful overall. Um, you know, some of the younger ones were a little, a little more wild, but they were. It was really nice to teach them. It was a good environment, and they're very strict there. It's just a totally different economic, I mean, rather educational kind of framework as far as uh, like, okay, we do this, we do that. Very, very strict and rigid that I wasn't used to. But it was nice. I mean, you got paid well. You got like a free uh, apartment or a very cheap apartment. They'd either give you a stipend or in Korea, they give you a completely free apartment uh, or they help you find a cheaper one in Taiwan if there's there's not one available. But everything was so yeah. inexpensive. Yeah. Is that just for in, um, teachers coming over there to teach English or is that for all the teachers? Um, it's hard to say. I mean, English is the most popular one, but I know for English teachers in Korea, you get free housing for sure. Um, every single job either provides you a stipend for your rent or you get um, housing provided by uh, the school. In Taiwan, they kind of help you find housing. Uh, they don't, but it's so cheap there. I mean, I had pretty much what was a, essentially a penthouse apartment for about the equivalent of 300 a month. <laughs> So, oh God, yeah. <laughs> so it was it was crazy inexpensive so you know I mean yeah it's I don't know about other teachers I believe though definitely universities because I did have friends that taught other subjects at the Korean university I was at and they had on-campus housing that was free um it wasn't like great but it was kind of like your own private a little apartment like a studio but hey it was free so <laughs> most people took it um or they took a stipend if they really didn't want it they would give them what they figured the equivalent would be. So maybe four or $500, which is enough to get a nice studio in Korea. So the, the price of things is just completely different from here, like insanely different. So is that one of your focuses? If you win the district one position to focus on teacher pay and schools and stuff? Yeah, definitely. I'm still writing out um, a lot of my policies right now, but uh, I I definitely want to focus on education. I do think teachers should be paid more and respected more. And I think those two things will go hand in hand. Um, in Asia, it's a little different. They respect teachers first and then so they pay them more. But in America, I think if we start paying teachers more, they'll get that respect. I think that's probably the quickest way to do it with our culture is a little different. But that's one focus, of course, raise teacher pay. but um also just 
you know, we need to expand some of the things that we're doing because countries in Asia are just lapping us in certain areas, especially in language education. We need to have, you know, our students also learning other languages. I think that's very important. We can't just be monolingual and think that that's going to uh, just be okay forever. Like we're going to have to, you know, be bilingual, trilingual, like most other cultures are to compete at some level. And I think if a kid grows up and they get, for example, Mandarin education, since they're a little kid, uh, you know, when they're in their 20s, that's going to be a massive advantage. They're going to have all kinds of different opportunities open up for them. And if we do that for everybody the way they do in China, I think that we can compete on a much better level. So language education um, is definitely something I'd like to focus on. And I'd like to bring that more into our education system. Yeah. So do you think that like school choice would be more of the way to do that, as in no public schools, just the parents choose which schools they want to send their kids to? Or are you still an advocate for public schools? Yeah, I'm definitely an advocate for public schools unless, you know, they're, you know, just not meeting the standards that are necessary, then there should be some sort of school choice. There's some issues I have with school choice that I think it gets a little sticky. I think it's a very nuanced subject. I mean, I don't want to leave public schools completely behind and have no public option because that's going to put certain communities at a huge disadvantage. Um, But then again, I don't want there to be no other option for, you know, people if they, you know, want the choice to send their kid to a different school. I don't want them to be forced to do something. I don't like um, it being mandatory to go to a certain school. That's a little weird. And then it still, you know, gives people to have more money, the ability to move to a better district and put their kids somewhere else. So uh, it's a very complicated issue to me. I don't have like a, a very like, yes, yes, school choice or no school choice. I think that it depends on a lot of factors. And I, I support public schools. I support private schools. I actually went to a private uh, Christian high school. It definitely had better education than my public middle school did. Um, I'm sure it did than the public high school that was an option for me. So I do think there's a huge value to private schools. I just think that uh, we have to look at it a little more nuanced and make sure that we're making the decisions um, as far as the quality of the school and not just public versus private, because some private schools are not great. Some public schools are great. So what do you do then? Um, what? How do we make the public schools better? And how do we also give people an option for private? So I think I fall kind of in the middle somewhere on that. And speaking of schools, one of your policies that you want to focus on is free community college. Mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, I think, I mean, right now we have free K to 12. Um, this would essentially be making it free K to 14, if you want to think of it that way. And I would like us to focus uh, more on skilled trades because skilled trades are going to be things that are not subject to automation. (laughs) It's going to be very hard to automate, uh, you know, an air conditioner repairman or a plumber or an electrician or these jobs that traditionally haven't gotten a lot of attention or people have been pushed into going into higher education for these degrees that they don't necessarily need or can't necessarily get a job with. So I think if you have a free community college, you extend high school a little bit, allow people when they're maybe junior, senior year to pick like a track, maybe like, okay, I want to do the college track, or you know what, I want a skilled trade track. And then there's an option for me, I can go and learn how to be an electrician. 
Um, or if you're on the college track, then you could be like, great, I want to knock out my general education requirements for free instead of going and paying some, you know, university 50 grand to, <laughs> to just teach me general education classes, which can be taught literally anywhere because they're just general basic classes. So I think that moving towards free community college, I think it makes a lot of sense. It'll encourage more of the trades and the skills and also allow people to knock out those general education requirements, which is something that I did. I'm a big fan of community college. I knocked out my first two years there and transferred and saved a ton of money. Uh, so I think it was a good experience. So I'd like to see community colleges grow and become more you know, vital parts of the education system. Yeah, um, I think trade schools, that's so valuable and should be more um, advertised. The free community college, I mean, it's not, I would just be worried again, um, it's not free, right? Like somebody would have to pay for it and that would be the taxpayer. So that would mean more taxes. So that's my issue with that. But I mean, I understand that's a really good way of knocking out gen eds and then not spending as much money on higher education, which it is very expensive. That leads me to another question. On your website, you mentioned that you had a hard time finding a job and like making a living. And you did your master's in English and then PhD in applied linguistics. So do you think if you picked a different field, you'd have more luck with a job? Possibly. I mean, I don't think that I have the skills or the um, ability for a lot of fields, which is the problem with that. I don't think that I'm a STEM-minded type of person. I would have just done yeah, all Yeah, I'm not F's. either. Yeah. <laughs> I think I just would have gotten all Fs and felt really defeated and dropped out. Um, so yeah. um, for me, I'm just more on that side of things. Like I, I was pre-law, um, so I did political science, which is called politics at the school I did it because it was more philosophy based. Um, so that's just more like I, it was more public speaking and debating and research. And that's just where I kind of shine. So I think we just sort of immediately go towards fields that we're good at. So that's kind of what I did. I just was like, hey, I'm good at this. I can get B's and A's here. But yeah, sure. Maybe I could have like struggled and <laughs> figured out a way to be an engineer, but it would have been extremely difficult and probably too stressful and I probably would have burned out. Um, so I kind of went that way. I, 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 I mean, you had to realize at the time that I was deciding to go to college, we didn't realize that this was like a thing that you couldn't get a job like after college. This was 2000. This was the year 2000 when I was making these decisions. And um, everybody still thought it was a great idea that you could go and there'd be tons of jobs. And, you know, the 90s were pretty good economically. And people were getting jobs left and right. You know, you could go and get a 50K job out of school. And that was just a normal thing. So when I made these decisions um, initially to get my degree in something soft, a softer type of field, um, I thought I was going to go and be a lawyer. And then I didn't think that was a good idea <laughs> when I came out of school in uh, 2006, 2007. Uh, I no longer thought that was a good idea. I thought I'd be going into a lot of debt and the economy was looking really sad. So then I went and taught English. And then with that, you know, I, I got a master's in that so that I could continue it because I really loved it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I kind of knew that wasn't a super lucrative field. I thought that I would actually probably stay in Asia longer. Um, I didn't think I would miss my family as much and my culture so much. But as I was getting older as a woman, 
you know, kind of didn't want to live there anymore and just came back. And then, and then I wanted to, you know, go into linguistics again, because that's it. That's what I could get into at that point. And the economy was still pretty bad. So I was like, well, maybe I should go back to school again. I mean, I think this is like, it's like a typical older millennial story. Um, it's just kind of like, what the heck happened? Like my parents told me to go to college and now there's no jobs. And I don't know, I'm going to try this and maybe I'll go back to school again. Maybe I'll try something like this. But I mean, if when I talk to a lot of people my age, they're like, yep, yep, yep. Um, so <laughs> I think it's a, my story is sort of a common one. And yes, if I would have picked or been skilled in math or engineering or coding or computer science, then of course I'd be sitting pretty right now. But uh, I guess that's not, that's not the path that, that I chose. <laughs> yeah, no, I am right there with you. I'm not skilled in STEM or anything like that. No way. <laughs> it's very difficult. Um, I mean, I, I give so many props to my friends. They're, they're, you know, geniuses and that stuff. I have a lot of friends yeah. that are great at that and it's so important and I'm so glad they're doing that important work. Um, I just, I just couldn't do it personally. I'd be, I'd be awful. <laughs> Yeah, I would too. Yeah. That's why I'm learning that trade schools are pretty valuable because um, I went to a trade school for dog grooming and dog grooming is, I mean, you can always find a career, but I'm not finding a career in communications, <laughs> uh, which is what I right. majored in. So it's like, well, all right, cool. <laughs> I'm just not skilled in what the economy demands i guess yeah i mean it's an interesting situation i honestly think like when the 80s and 90s from what i hear from people that are a little older than us like gen x or a little older there were a lot of jobs i mean you could come out of college with a degree in communications and go and you know <laughs> like go and submit your application a few places and somebody be like yeah you know what we really need a good writer at this company here we'll pay you 50 60k just to get started because we need somebody to do this stuff and that just isn't the case anymore. You know, you go now and you're competing with everybody, you know, people, all these English majors and communication majors. And how are you going to stand out from them when you have, you know, so many people with the same degrees now? I think we were just kind of, um, I mean, I think we were sold a lie. That's my personal belief. But it's not anybody's fault. They didn't really know. <laughs> but, but in a way, it yeah. seems like, oh, God, like this was this is not worth um, tens of thousands of dollars, um, my degree that I got. And I wish, oh, my gosh, if I could go back right now with the knowledge I have time machine, I would definitely get a trade. I would go and get some kind of skilled trade that, you know, immediately would make like 80k a year, which there's tons of them, and just go into that and be sitting really nice right now. Yeah completely agree um <laughs> so let's go back to some of your other policies what um what else do you want to talk about that you're gonna try and that you stand for i guess for your district one position yeah definitely um i think that i mean my top three are universal basic income universal health care and democracy reform uh, the democracy reform policies that I have, I think, are pretty cool. They're a little wonky, so I don't know. Or <laughs> we could talk about healthcare, which is kind of played out um, um, in the national discussion. Um, or we. Can, I'm kind of interested yeah. in um, your democracy reform. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so a couple, a lot of things fall under that framework. My top two are um, ranked choice voting. 
and democracy dollars. Um, now, ranked choice voting is a little—it's a little weird to explain, but essentially, some states are already doing it. So, when you go to the ballot box right now, in most states, you just vote for one person—you know, your your top choice—and you vote for them, and that's it. One person, one one person to vote for. And then if, you know, if they don't win, if they have no shot, then essentially you feel like you burned your vote, right? Or you you kind of just wasted it because you knew that like they, they had no choice or no shot. Um, with ranked choice voting, you essentially get to rank your choices. So like, let's say you go and there's four people and you really like one of those four people. You're like, that person's awesome. I would love them to be my representative. I just don't think they have a shot, but I'm going to put them as the top choice. And then I really don't like these other two people that are on this list and I'm kind of okay with one of them. So I'm going to just pick like the one I really love and the one I'm kind of okay with next. If they win, I'm not going to be upset and then put the other ones down at the bottom somewhere. And then if your top choice doesn't win, then it goes to the one that you think is kind of okay. And then if the kind of okay doesn't win, then you go, it goes down the line. Um, but I think it would really solve a lot of issues with kind of having to vote the lesser of two evils and you know you wouldn't feel like you're wasting your vote so then that person that you think doesn't have a chance suddenly might have a chance because everybody will put them as their first choice and suddenly they might win whereas opposed to other ways they might be like ah that person doesn't have a shot i'm just gonna vote for this other person so that's one concept that i have that i would love to see implemented hmm. does that make sense that's interesting yeah i'm i'm just trying to process it so okay i guess so each person would get more than one vote then um sort of you kind of rank your choices so let's say i mean let's just make it kind of let's go back to like 2016 republican primary or something where you had a bunch of people running mm -hmm. and lay like, maybe let's say uh you wanted um jeb bush or something and you know and then your second choice was like marco rubio and then your third choice was ted cruz and your fourth choice was donald trump let's just say there's four people running um, mm -hmm. so you could actually put those all and put, you know, somebody as your last choice there. And so like, and if Jeb doesn't win, it would go to Marco Rubio, go to Ted Cruz. So you have, essentially you have, um, multiple people that you can vote for and you can actually rank who you have as your first choice. So, you know, it would just change the dynamic of, of everything because maybe some people who went to the ballot box and they were like, oh man, like I. I'm just going to vote the lesser of two evils here. Like, I don't know, or this person doesn't have a shot. So I'm just not going to vote for them at all. And I'm just going to vote for these two people. It kind of eliminates that whole factor. So you get to just rank your votes in the form of choice. So you just are like first choice, second choice, third choice, fourth choice, fifth choice. And then, you know, if, if your person that you really didn't like, you got to put them at the, the bottom and then your vote probably won't go to them. It'll just kind of go down the line. And they're doing it some places already with pretty significant results. It basically allows uh, lesser known people or, you know, people that might not have a shot to suddenly have a shot because they might get, you know, first choice suddenly. Whereas opposed to if you have like an incumbent and then some lesser known person, sometimes people just vote for the incumbent because they're scared of um, their vote being wasted. Hmm. What um, places are doing this? Uh, I got to look that up. That's a great question. Um, Somebody was just telling me they have ranked choice voting in their state. Yeah, you got me. I don't know. I don't know the exact place. <laughs> but I was just having a talk with somebody. I think it was 
God, I can't remember. There's some states that are, are starting to move that way. I can't remember if it's county level or actual statewide. I'll have to look at that. Yeah, so um, what has the constituents' reactions been to um, the ranked choice voting? Do they think it's a good idea? Or? Yeah, um, in general, a lot of people don't know what it is. So it's, <laughs> it is an education process, but <laughs> when they hear about it, it's pretty like, yeah, that makes sense. Like it's not... As long, yeah, as long as they, they can understand it, it's pretty much just like a, it's like a pragmatic type of policy that kind of everybody can get behind. That's like, it's not going to harm anything. It's just like, it's just changing the way that we vote. So our votes um, can feel like they matter more so that we can feel like we can actually vote for the person we actually like instead of the lesser of two evils every time. Yeah. So, but people, I mean, it's really hard for people to change, I think, unless they have to. So how are you going to convince the other people in Congress to that this is a good idea? Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of a no brainer. I just think that people are focused on more pressing issues. But I think when you actually talk to people on any political persuasion, if you talk to them about ranked choice voting, there's, there's not a whole lot of pushback. They're not like, that's horrible. Like, it's more just like, yeah, like what you're saying, how do we implement it? Um, well, I mean, I think that you can implement it lots of different ways. They're already testing it. So I guess you just get the data from where they're testing it and make sure everybody understands it. And, you know, you kind of just, people understand like ranking other things, I think from social media and other things that they're doing like games. So I think that you just have to make it kind of fun and, you know, we should really make these types of things more interesting. And I mean, we should like use technology to educate voters. We could, you could create a cool little app. that's like a game that shows you how to do ranked choice voting now. And then you're like, all right, cool. I get it. Yeah. Stuff like that. Like we have to make it fun again. That's why people don't vote because it's so boring and and lame and you feel like your vote doesn't matter. You know, I mean, I'm sure like, you know, people listening or yourself, if you're a Republican in Oregon, you might feel well, if I'm in the Portland area, my vote doesn't really matter a lot, you know, and that's that's not a cool feeling. So we have to kind of make it fun and get people more excited and involved to feel like, yeah, my vote does matter. And I get to rank my choices and my, you know, it makes it makes it more interesting and vibrant. Yeah, for sure. Making it more fun. That would be awesome. Now for your second point, democracy dollars. What's what's that? So that's essentially uh, the public funding of elections, but it's in the form of a voucher. So it's kind of like a coupon that everybody would get um, for $100 is the most popular amount, which makes sense. So like I would get um, a coupon um, that's $100 worth of coupon that I could donate to any political candidate that I liked throughout the course of a year. If I don't use it, then I lose it. It goes away. You only get $100 per year. And that essentially... The reason for this is that it would wash out lobbyist money, lobbyist and special interest money. Um, some say by a factor of seven to one. And that's huge. So that means that you could actually go to the people that are voting for you and get the money from them rather than people having to go to these special interest groups in order to get funding so that they can actually run their election. So it essentially changes the funding source rather than trying to eliminate lobbyists or do these other things. We could just wash out lobbyist money. Um, by having this something like democracy dollars. So that's basically the proposal is you have you have this $100 every year that you can use and donate to whoever you'd like. Where does the money come from? Is it from the taxpayer? You can fund it lots of different ways. I mean, you could certainly fund it through the VAT or through a luxury 
um, consumption tax, which I think would be probably the best way. It's, I mean, it's only $100 and it's use it or lose it. And it's $100 a year. So it's pretty easy to fund that a lot of different ways. I think that we could we could figure that out. But it's it's essential, I think. I mean, you have to give people money in order to vote. It'll make in order to donate. Um, because right now, the only people that have the money are, you know, corporations, corporate PACs, lobbyists, very powerful special interests, and they don't always represent what the people want. And then politicians just go to them instead of going to the, their actual voters and constituents and being like, what do you guys want? How can I earn your vote? How can I earn your, you know, donation? Um, so I think it's just, it's fundamental that we figure out a way to fund it. And you could easily fund it if you went back to uh, the luxury tax that we had in the early 90s, where you just tax things over like a quarter million dollars, and you could use that funding and bring it back. So I think it'd be pretty easy. So, well, two of the points on your website that I think we probably strongly agree on would be um, decriminalizing opioids and legalizing marijuana. And the marijuana, I mean, it's, I think it's already legal. It's legal in our Oregon. So It'll just have to be federal level. Yeah. I think that'll happen. I don't know how soon, but it'll probably happen kind of quickly. I hope so. Um, I mean, I think it's ridiculous. Yeah. You can't have you know, this percentage of states that have it legal and have it federally illegal because it creates so many problems. Uh, that's just ridiculous. Problems in banking and problems in criminal justice. And, you know, we need to get rid of all these nonviolent um, marijuana offenders in prisons. It's just costly and ridiculous just get them out of there <laughs> it's pointless yeah yeah so when you say um decriminalize op opioids so that would that be all the hard drug well yeah but opioids would just be uh, opiate derivatives so all the oxycontins and the you know all the way up to heroin because sadly people got addicted to oxycontin and fentanyl and then moved to heroin and decriminalizing it you know just means you're not you're not criminalizing these users anymore you're not making them criminals because they're addicted to opiates you can refer them to treatment instead of a jail cell so that people aren't scared to go and get help and it's important right now i mean you know with purdue pharma and what happened with them basically pushing these drugs onto people that didn't even need them it's just, it's immoral and it's wrong. And they made billions, sometimes trillions of dollars off of doing this. So I think we need to take care of these people now. It's its huge. You have so many people overdosing and just on the streets, you know, addicted to heroin. And some of these people were normal people just a few years ago, like working a normal job, got a little injury, went in, were prescribed oxy, got addicted. And suddenly their life is like in shambles because they should have never been prescribed like a narcotic. Um, so I think that we need to just decriminalize anything to do with a monopiate for sure. And, you know, possibly move that to other drugs as well. I'm definitely open to that. That specific policy was for opioids um, because I think that's a huge problem in District 1 in Portland and lots of other parts of the country is severe um, opioid addiction. Yeah. And that goes hand in hand with homelessness. At least oh, I yeah. think if we decriminalize opioids then think homelessness would probably go down oh yeah um, i think so i mean you have yeah. to yeah you can't yeah it's it's obscene how many homeless people there are in portland and we have to do something about it and if we can get these people into treatment 
that's step one. I mean, you're, they're not going to be able to be productive members of society if they're literally addicted to, you know, heroin. <laughs> that's not going to work. So we have to move them into treatment immediately, get them clean, which is actually, you know, fairly, you know, doable process with um, drugs like this. If you actually do it, you can get somebody clean and productive pretty quickly. Um, you know, if you actually give them the correct treatment. So I think we need to do that instead of sending them to jail, because that's just as costly, to be honest, as throwing them all in jail. And then they get out and they're on the street again. And it's it's a huge problem. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, it's interesting because your policies, um, I mean, the universal basic income, universal health care, that's more left. But like decriminalizing opioids, that's a very libertarian kind of point of view yeah you seem to be mixed view which is i think is really good um that it's not just completely left socialist thinking thank you yeah no i don't i'm not really an ideologue i try to be more pragmatic and i definitely lean left but i also lean libertarian i don't like authoritarianism and i don't like you know, the government having to control every aspect of people's lives. So, but I also do think we need to humanize things and take care of people and some things are just the right way to go. So it definitely is like a left libertarian, I guess is how I would describe myself if I had to. (laughs) The main part is, is like, we have to focus on solving problems. And, you know, if there's a real problem, it doesn't matter, you know, if it's left or right, we have to figure out how to fix it. Like, and come together on that and hey this is this is harming people and i think we can all agree that you know we want to help people and make sure everybody everybody's doing all right yeah definitely i think that's a good note to end on unless you have anything else you want to say ah uh, no just you know thank you so much i you know i hope that uh people enjoyed the conversation i thought it was really awesome and hopefully people reach out to me if they have any questions you can you know, find me on Twitter if you want. It's just Heidi Brionis. And other than that, thanks so much. It was really awesome. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Young Republicans of Oregon podcast. Please like and follow our Facebook page.